0: Kids these days, they read books, they even write books. But how do you connect teenagers with your website and book? Well, this is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr. Vulcan of Book Marketing, and today we are joined by an aspiring young adult, speculative novelist, Amy Earls. Welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast.
1: Thanks, Thomas. It's great to be here.
0: So this is one of our coaching episodes. If you haven't heard one of these already, this is where somebody picks my brain live on the air and you get to listen in. So Amy, walk us through your question.
1: Yeah, so as an aspiring author... I'm wanting to build my followers. I don't have any teen followers uh, right now on my site that I know of. <laughs> and one of the problems I've seen is that no teens seem to be on websites, from what I hear they're on Instagram, you know, they're maybe on Facebook, definitely on TikTok, from what I've heard. But if I want to grow followers, how do I market for my website for a teen audience?
0: So the first thing I would do is start connecting with teens in real life. It's a lot easier to connect with teens in real life. Not that it's easy to connect with teens in real life, but what those teens are going to do, those initial teens, is they're going to guide you into what and how to target the other teens. Because when we talk about teens, it's not like all teens are on TikTok or no teens hang out on websites. Teenagers, maybe more than any other group of people, hang out in very tight clusters, where the behavior of one cluster of teens is going to be very different from another cluster of teens. So you have one group of teens and they're video gaming all the time. You have another group of teens and they're doing drugs all the time. You have another group of teens and they're hacking into websites. And another group of teens are just talking about clothes and boys, right? Or and there's a million different groups. And so you can't target teens, capital T, teens. You target a specific group of teens. So for J.K. Rowling, she targeted specifically 12-year-old boys. And that target allowed her to reach everybody. But she started the tip of the spear is 12-year-old boys. So let's drill down with you. What is the specific teenager that you're targeting with your writing?
1: Well, it seems like they would be readers. And so I, kn- I know that even just a previous podcast, I heard from you talking about promoting good reads as a place to find, because there is that community already where they're you know they're reading. They're already interested in a specific even genre of book. You know, like that. There maybe it's teen girls who are interested in ones that have some romance and adventure or a certain category within that genre. Um, so there's that kind of thing. And then there's also maybe more specifically. So like mine, for instance, is I have the tagline "Fly by Faith," and so it may be even more specific to. Christian teens who maybe are interested in having their faith grow and even just learning their gifts, because that's a big part of my book, too, is is having gifts that they use for other people. And so there's that specifically. But how specific do I get with that?
0: You want to get as specific as possible. What I recommend is that you actually find an actual teenager to be your, quote, Timothy, quote, which is your representative reader. It's really easy for us to kind of create an imaginary friend that is our ideal reader who likes everything we have to read. It's harder to pick an actual teenager. (laughs) Yeah. Ideally, one who's not uh, related to you because, you know, especially not your kids, right? Because your kids are like, mom, gross, you know, you know, whatever you do, maybe not interesting to your own kids or or maybe they are interesting to your kids or they're being nice. It's hard to get good feedback from your own children or nieces and nephews. But, uh, you know, if you're targeting Christian teens, I would be involved with your church's youth group. My guess is they're desperate to have people willing to volunteer for free, and that'll help get you in uh, to the lingo because the teenagers right now are growing up in a very different world. I know we, we always say that, but it's really different for them right now because of the pandemic and because of technology. You know, it's hard enough for teenagers to communicate normally. But right now they're having to do it in a world where they can't see anyone's faces. And so they're really much preferring to communicate through screens rather than face to face or in any other way because they can control it. Because the other thing that's very much is that there's this big pressure to conform where you get ostracized, which, again, every generation faces that. But right now it's especially intense. You get canceled from your community if you don't follow the social norms and just one wrong thing that you say can get you canceled. And so they want to be really careful with what they say. And so, but that's just one element of teenagers. And as you interact with them and you listen to them, you'll start to see where they hang out, right? Because where Christian teens hang out online may be different, Right. Like once you start to narrow down which, you know, table at the cafeteria at the high school you're targeting, it really changes how you interact with the teenagers, right? Because if you're targeting Christian teens, maybe you're not targeting any of the tables at the cafeteria. You're targeting homeschoolers, right? The homeschool teens read a ton of books. (laughs) One of the authors in my mastermind group went to a homeschool convention two or three weeks ago, and he sold out all of his books. In two hours, two days of the convention, and he only had the one book that he didn't sell so he could show it to people coming by his booth. They're very voracious readers, but what they're looking for is very different than what, say, public school Christian teens would be looking for.
1: Yeah, so I'm even just thinking, like, I did contact a youth group just asking if any kids were interested in reading the book as, you know, just for feedback. I got one teen girl who was interested and she she loved it she was like you know i'm fangirling i love this how do you grow from getting one response to you know having it uh, accumulate or or getting getting more than just one
0: so a couple of things one i would ask her what about your story she found that really resonated with her Uh, Because that will help you inform what you put in your back cover copy. It will inform what you put in your book proposal if you're trying to get traditionally published. It will help inform what you put in ads and how you talk about the book. There's different tropes that stories are made out of. Tropes are like the ingredients of stories. And different tropes resonate with people differently. And part of the reason why you want to spend time with teens is you want to understand what tropes are connecting One of the challenges of writing cross-generationally is that we assume, oh, I was a teenager once. I know what it was like. (laughs) And that's not true. At least right now in this era, technology is changing so quickly. Each generation, at least historically, has been defined by the defining technology. All right, so my grandparents, they had radio. They were the first generation with radio. My parents, first generation growing up with TV. Then Gen X, first generation with cable TV. And then the millennials, you have the early millennials who grew up with computers for the first time. And then later millennials who grew up with the internet for the first time. And then you have Gen Z who grows up with phones. You know, they always had the answers to all of their questions in their pockets. And then Generation Alpha which is supposedly the next name of the next generation, is the generations growing up post-pandemic. So they're potentially the first generation where the defining characteristic of the generation is not some new world-breaking technology, but rather the fact that everyone is wearing masks. And that makes things different. It makes things weird. And what causes a story to resonate is when you the elements of your story connect with the pain points that people are feeling in their life. People are like, oh, that means I need to put masks on the characters in my life. No, no, no. <laughs> like, It's not the superficial things. You don't need to have a pandemic in your story. You need to have the same kind of core pains that they're overcoming. Because every novel includes the protagonist overcoming challenges. And if they can relate to those challenges, then they'll relate to the protagonist and they'll like your story better.
1: That's good. I'm even thinking to, like, say I, I even gather followers I have. A group of uh, maybe even just five who are interested, who are liking what they read, they're ready to promote what I have. What do you suggest I would start as far as bringing them to my website, and and even I'm even just thinking before I even have the book published, where do I put my money? You know, where do I where do I invest so that I'm growing and I'm even just offering things that are for them and not just to have a pretty site or have something that's you know everybody does. But what is something that is really then uh, helping this group of followers who have decided that they are committing to what I have to offer?
0: So how much of a... Anytime we talk about money, it's important to know how much we have to work with. Because the best way to spend $50 is different from the best way to spend $50,000, right? If you have $50,000, well, you start hiring people. You, get, you surround yourself with professionals. If you have $50 be really specific. So what's your kind of book promotion budget?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. And I knew you were going to ask me that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It needs to be money that you're willing to lose (laughs) because writing and publishing are risky, right? The rewards can be really high, but the likelihood of commercial failure is also really high. There's no guaranteed hits. Even big publishers lose money on the majority of the books that they publish. And the only people who really can reliably guarantee that their next book is going to be a hit are people whose last five or six books are going to be hits. And even then, sometimes they write duds. So this is a, a high-risk, high-reward budget. So this is not... You don't put your kids' college money in here. You don't put the mortgage payment in here. But you do want to put something in this budget because the more you sow, the more you can reap. And so if you're you know, only putting two seeds in the ground, you're really hoping those two seeds are going to bring you back a return.
1: Right. I, th- I think that even from what I've seen, everything that's great, it had some beginning. And so even just knowing how I wanna start that beginning, I feel like I mean, I'm I'm willing to spend what I need to. It's hard to know what the you know, what the certain amount would be, but whatever's required, I guess, but not not a waste of of that money. But like you said, it's it's planting something that's gonna, you know, um it's going to be beneficial. It's going to it's going to be effective. Um, but I mean, I don't know, maybe $1,000. I'm not sure what the norm is for uh, starting that kind of thing.
0: Yep. $1,000 is good. We can work with $1,000. So here's the first thing I would do. And that is I would go through my free course on how to build an amazing author website. So while the course is free and the training is free, I, building a website does cost money. And the reason why you want a good website built with WordPress.org, on Divi, search engine optimized, which in the course I walk you through a lot of that, is that while kids may not think they go to websites, they go to Google all the time. (laughs) They're constantly Googling. And none of the promotion that you do is going to do you any good if you're not ranking for your own name on Google. And it could even backfire if they're searching for your name and they're finding somebody else then you're just promoting somebody else or they're just getting lost. And so you got to get that top rank on Google. And it takes a while to build up search engine results. And so you want to get that clock started right away. So it's the first place I'd spend money. Divi costs $100 to $200, if I remember correctly. And you can buy three years of Blue hosting for two or $300. So altogether, it's about $400 for about three years worth of a website. And you don't have to keep paying for Divi. You can get a lifetime subscription to it. And then that gives you $500 for other things. Uh, So before we decide what to spend the rest of the money on, let me ask you this. What's your timeline? When will your book be ready? And which way are you planning to publish?
1: I'm planning on publishing traditionally. And I rewrote the entire manuscript and I'm in the editing phase. So I'm giving myself about a year uh, as a loose timeline.
0: Okay. So I'll just tell you, there's no real market for Christian YA because basically without exception, none of the Christian publishers know how to connect with teenagers. None of them have it figured out. They, every once in a while, they'll take a shot and in the last 10 years, they've had zero hits. So while in the secular world, there's been Twilight and Divergent and Harry Potter and there's been like big hit after big hit in the Christian YA world, there's been zero hits, like nothing. <laughs> in terms, of, There have been books that have paid for themselves, but there's been no like runaway hit made into a movie, no left behind, no purpose-driven life. Like Christian books in Christian publishing, they have hits, but not in YA. And I think it's because they don't understand the teenagers that they're writing to fundamentally. They're writing to the teenagers as they want them to exist rather than as they really do exist. And the YA authors who are seeing the best- results and the best sales are the ones who are just embracing the homeschool market as their market. And they're quietly making good money, but they're often doing it as an independently published author because the traditional publishers in general don't understand the homeschool market and they don't market to it well. I'm willing to be convinced that there are some exceptions, but I've yet to see those exceptions. Um Really stated the authors that do well in the homeschool market don't do well because their publisher connected them there. They did it well because they connected themselves to the homeschool market. So it sounds like the reason why you're trying to build up this website is that you're trying to build a platform to get a publisher interested, which is even more important for you because the publisher is like, we have no idea how to connect to the kids. These kids don't make sense to us. They didn't make sense just 20 years ago. And now they're even weirder, right? It's a bunch of older people running these, big publishing companies, and they don't know how to connect. So you're going to have to prove with raw numbers. So the question is, what kind of numbers? Well, the best numbers are email addresses. But how much kids do email, people don't tend to do email a lot until they have a job. Once they have a job, especially like a a sit-down job where they're in front of their computer all the time, that's when email really becomes magical. (laughs) So your typical book reader, who's a wealthier, you know, middle-class person, typically has a desk job. And they're in front of a computer all day. And reaching them with emails really powerful. With kids, I'm not convinced emails is, is as good. With teenagers, I, I still think it's good, but it's not the like golden ticket. Probably the easiest way is instead of trying to become an influencer yourself, which I think is what you're expecting me to say, like go on Instagram and become an influencer. Uh, that's like saying, well, you know, step one of starting a business is to win the lottery. <laughs> <It's> really <laughs> hard to become an influencer, especially. A cross generational influencer. But instead, if you go the Indie route, just sponsor the influential teens who already have, you know, 100,000 followers on TikTok. Somebody with 100,000 followers on TikTok is not making any money. And so if you say, hey, will you do a TikTok about my book for 50 bucks? They'll probably be like, you're the first person to reach out to me, right? Because $100,000 isn't enough to really be interesting to advertisers. But it's plenty to be interesting to you, especially if you're targeting homeschoolers and they have a homeschool audience or you're targeting, you know, band kids or whatever you end up targeting. And I know it hurts to target, to narrow. You're like, no, I want to I want to write to all of the teenagers. <laughs> but you got to get some kids who won't shut up about you, who won't stop talking about you at school to the other kids. And the only way to get there is to pick which group you're going to thrill.
1: Do you think that could work for even public school? I'm just thinking even just having... um I know I maybe go and visit and and speak or I don't I don't know if that would work as well it sounds like homeschool would be like the is just the biggest market for young adult Christian Secular
0: public schools aren't super friendly to Christians, especially if they've got that branding, right? I'm, I'm a Christian author with a Christian book. They're pretty biased against that, especially uh, public school librarians are very biased against it. But even the teachers and the administration, it's hard. It's not impossible, but there's a strong bias against that. Basically, any other group, you'd be more favored than being a Christian. And so I would say that that's probably the hardest path. Maybe someone has successfully done it, but it's it's not a proven path. You'd probably be better off going with private schools, like Christian private schools, may be more interested in working with you. But yeah, the public school path is really hard. If if you're writing a secular book or a mainstream book, you know, trying to speak at public schools can be. You know, if you're willing to hustle and you're good at doing public school events and you've got the connections and you know how to get past the gatekeepers, that can be a very successful way to do it, and you get a rotation. Once you get 50 schools, you can just rotate through them to 25 schools a year. You know, every two years, the kids change and you just keep selling your books to that audience. And it doesn't make you a bestseller, but it can make you a living. But uh, I would say it's a lot harder to find that as a Christian author.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Right now, when I Google my name, it's an artist who comes up under my same name. And that's kind of what I see. Does that mean I should, you know, change my name, <laughs> or does increasing the SEO help with that, it, so that I, I'm easily found by googling my name?
0: Ah, uh, the question, the idle question: What do I do if somebody else has my name? We actually have an entire episode on this, titled "How to Stand Out When Your Name Fits In," and so the first thing to do is decide how strong the current artist with your name is they have an advantage and they have a heads up uh they own i just googled your name and it uh, this artist has your name.art so somebody owns your name.com and they may be willing to sell it but it looks like it's 10 to 15 thousand dollars evaluation
1: i had seen on one on website that I could buy it for 200. Now, how how do I trust who I can buy it from? <laughs> if if I'm trying to get that domain.
0: Um, well, if somebody has it for sale for 200, if it's like right. domainbrokers.com or there's a bunch of domain sites and 200 is a great deal. Now, 200 may be the initial offer, but a lot of these sites do is they're like make an offer, the minimum offer is $200. Mm-hmm. And that means that they're going to try to find the person who owns it see if they want to sell it, and then try to get some negotiations started. That's not worth it, typically. It can be, and, and usually it's $70 or $80 to start that conversation, but don't go into it thinking it's only going to be $200 at the end of the day. That's the, your opening offer, and they may counter at $20,000, and you settle at five. That said, buying a domain from somebody else who owns it can be a really good investment. AuthorMedia.com, I bought it from somebody who owns it umstat.com. I bought it from somebody who owns it. Some squatter in India. (laughs) I'm like, what are you doing with this very German sounding name? Nobody in India is going to want this name. And he was just bought it to sell it to one of the umstats. And I was the one who ended up buying it. And I'm glad I did, but it, you know, it was more than $200 for me to buy that name. So the first question you have to ask is, is it worth it for me to fight for this name? It's easier for you since this is an artist, not an author which means that while you're going to be fighting on Google, you're not going to be fighting on Amazon. Somebody searches your name on Amazon. If you're the only person with your name, then you're good to go. Now, there may be another author who's got bad Google rankings who is on Amazon. So let's do a quick search here just (laughs) to see. (laughs) Um,
1: I don't know if I found anybody, but.
0: Looks like nobody with your exact same name. Uh, Okay. People with your same first name, but that's that. Right. Nothing's coming up. So that's good. So you can decide to fight for it or not. And if you decide to fight for it, it means you're going to have to really be aggressive at search engine optimization. That means active content on your website, blogging, ideally, or a podcast, and getting other websites to link to your website. The other option is to add a middle name or to have two initials. What you must not do is combine those strategies. So don't have your first name and then a middle initial and then your last name. That is the worst. That's just absolutely the worst. And if you don't believe me, ask James L. Rubart and ask all of the <laughs> trouble in his life that has been caused <laughs> by going by James I, L. Rubart. I,
1: I'm glad you said that cuz I considered it when it was available. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um yeah, what about author Amy Earls? Does that work or is it better to just have my full name for the domain? Yeah,
0: if you were authorAmyEarls.com, I think that that helps create a distinction. And then you have your meta title, your SEO title being official website for author Amy Earls, something like that, which helps distinguish between you and this artist, because it may be that you're not able to push them down all the way. And, you know, that's kind of obnoxious, right? The artist was there first. She's doing good art, I assume. I haven't looked at her art, (laughs) but, you know, she hasn't done you any harm. So trying to push her out altogether maybe not a good way to start your career. But having a, um, it, although one thing you could do is if the person who's got com, let's say they're selling their website for uh, the domain for $1,000, you could go to Amy Earls, the other one, and say, hey, uh, how about we set this website up that's got you know your photo and my photo. If they go there, they click and decide which uh, Amy Earls uh-huh. they want. Kind of like a disambiguation page on Wikipedia. And I see this occasionally Is like a way that companies with the same name will have a truce where, you know, they have a dot com is basically a which one do you want? And that takes you to separate websites for the two companies that have the same name. Sometimes one will have a banner along the top. Are you like, are you looking for this? You know, are you looking for Acme Bricks? Oh, this (laughs) is Acme uh, Dynamite. Click here to go to Acme Bricks. Uh, And that's along the top. So there's different ways of managing it. But that's another strategy you could try the other option is just to pick a middle name use it as your pen name something that you're the only one of with that three name combination Uh, mathematically you're far less likely to match with somebody with three names than you are with two it's uh the number of potential names uh, goes from some big number factorial to an even bigger number factorial i don't know the actual (laughs) math but it's it's really big and that will help you with your seo
1: great uh you mentioned podcasts and blogs uh, just a little bit ago and i'm even that's something i thought about as potential for maybe bringing in teens but i i don't know how much teens would even listen to a podcast and i know for a fact that they're not reading my blogs so should i attempt to to pursue those more or or at all
0: so It used to be that teens just didn't do podcasts because they had their parents' old iPhones or their parents' old Android hand-me-down phones, and they didn't have enough space for podcasts. That was the olden days. Now that Spotify has gotten into podcasting really big, I'm seeing teen adoption of of podcasts tick up. So this may actually be a really good time to start a teen podcast because there's not a lot of teen podcasts out there because teens historically have not been big on podcasts. And it may be a way for you to, to come in and, and get an angle. The What teens are really big on is YouTube. So lots of teens consuming YouTube. And there's lots of different worlds inside of YouTube. And AuthorTube is a big deal. And there's a lot of people who have video channels on YouTube. YouTube is its own skill set, though. And it's twice as complicated than podcasting because you not only have to figure out the audio, you also have to look good on camera and justify The fact that what you're creating exists as a video. One thing I would do is I would talk with that one reader who liked your book and ask her where she hangs out online, right? Get a list from her. This is the advantage of having a Timothy is that you can do much better market research than talking with a quote guru, unquote, who's giving you generic, like in general, teens do YouTube, but this teen and her friends don't, right? And if you're trying to target her and her friends, the general advice is toxic. It it puts you in entirely the wrong direction.
1: Yeah, I, d- I did ask her that question and she said, I don't do any of that, but my friends are on different social medias is what she asked them about it. So I didn't even think...
0: Wait, wait. So this is interesting. What does she do? <laughs> yeah. She, first off, is she homeschooled?
1: She's public school, okay. but she reads. Okay. She reads a lot. And she doesn't hang out online? She said she does not. Okay. But she loves to promote with her friends. Okay. So I'm
0: curious if this is going to become a bigger trend where teens are disconnecting because the online world is so toxic. And like with my kids, I'm not going to be encouraging them to get online very quickly because it's a very different world now and very poisonous, frankly. (laughs) And the cost of being online is developing real life relationships, which are far more valuable than online relationships. That said, I had a lot of benefit in my life of being a 14-year-old on the Lindos forums was part of this Linux distribution. And we were trying to take on Microsoft and we were very idealistic. And it was a good technical (laughs) education for me. But most people are not hanging out on those parts of the internet. That was unique to the special kind of nerd uh, that I was as a kid. But that is actually really telling because all teens are kind of weird in their own ways. And so she doesn't hang out online. And so it may be that, Offline marketing is really what works better for you, right? Going to conferences, speaking at youth groups, right? So what you lose in public school, you know, not being able to get in because you're a Christian, you may gain in youth groups, right? If you're able to develop some really good, strong youth group talks and say, hey, youth group leader, for one Thursday night, you don't have to put together something. I've got this great talk and I'll be really engaging and all the students will love it. And you, you know, there's a bunch of churches and a bunch of youth group leaders and they're all underfunded and they may be very happy for you to come in and speak for free. And if that works, you know, eventually you get more and more popular and you can start charging for it. So there, this is why kind of starting with your target reader. And for those of you who aren't targeting teens, this tactic works for all readers. <laughs> you start with your target <laughs> reader and then you figure out how would I reach this person and more people like them. And it can lead you to some unique marketing techniques.
1: That's really great. That's helpful.
0: So where do her friends hang out online? What did she say for where her friends were?
1: Well, they they just said basically a list of everywhere, Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And and then she suggested also, or she said that some people had talked at her school before. But mm-hmm. like we mentioned, that may not be a, an option.
0: Yeah. Another difference between how teens use social media, they're much less likely to broadcast broadly. And they're more likely to have lots of one-on-one conversations. They use social media more as like a messaging app. And the messages are self-destructive where they they last for a little bit of time, then they disappear because teenagers are the most surveilled. American teenagers are some of the most surveilled people in the history of the world, right? Their parents are spying on them. Their school is spying on them. Their government is spying on them. And every corporation they buy stuff from is spying on them. (laughs) They have very little privacy. And so they really seek out social networks that are willing to give them at least the illusion of privacy. So, oh yeah, this is totally deleted, this message that you sent. (laughs) We're not sharing it with the CIA.
1: (laughs) So is there even success for authors who maybe would even choose not to be on social media? Is that even an option these days?
0: Oh yeah. Uh, In fact, that's what I recommend for most authors. For people targeting adults, the the combination that works the most effectively is an email list and a website and then either a blog or a podcast and just writing more books. And so for most authors, social media is not the best use of their time. It's not that it's not beneficial, but the return on investment for per hour on social media is lower than the return on investment for pretty much any other activity. Most authors are spending so much time on social media, it's costing them about a book a year that they would have been written except they're on social media, and they'll get more benefit for their career from writing that extra book. Because each book promotes each other book, each book makes you a better writer, and each book makes you more money, right? So there's very few things that can compete with just writing more books. You know, a lot of authors have spent five years on one book, and they need that book to justify five years worth of work. Whereas if you're able to write a book in three months, it only needs to have to pay for three months worth of your life. And that's a lot easier to put on the shoulders of a book, especially if you're first getting started. And so a lot of indie authors are learning how to write faster, learning how to spend less time on social media, and they're just writing, writing, writing. And because they're doing that, they're getting better at writing faster than the ones who are, quote, trying to build a platform, unquote, on social media. It's a terrible place to build a platform, I, especially Facebook. I talk a lot about how Facebook's constantly changing the rules and people's platforms are getting destroyed with algorithm changes. And yeah, it's for, for me, it's like a seasoning that you add at the very end if you need it, but not all dishes need that seasoning.
1: I love that, though, because it it almost frees a little bit that there doesn't have to be this platform by performance in a way that, you know, you have to have the pretty pictures and the funny things in your life that people might like or might not like. But I I think it definitely puts off some pressure.
0: And it keeps you from having to get naked because straight talk, the people who are really popular are all willing to share swimsuit photos, at least in the (laughs) female side of influencer world. Like it's this kind of like it's for beautiful people who are willing to show off their beautiful bodies. And it's, right. it's part of the reason why it's so toxic for teenage girls because they create this unreasonable uh, expectation of what beauty is. They're starting to talk like an old man. Dad, when I was a kid. But seriously, if, if you look at the people who are successful, they're posting those kinds of photos and they're willing to be that vulnerable. Or if they're not physically that naked, they're emotionally that naked. And that's not healthy the people who are emotionally that naked where all of the strange internet knows every struggle in their life. I'm not sure if that's sustainable for years and years and years. I I, I see those people burning out and they end up spending a lot of time on therapy and a lot of money on therapy to help them be that vulnerable in front of the world. So yeah, I don't think social media is the way. And imagine if instead of being on social media, you spent that time calling youth group leaders of small churches and saying, hey, I'm Emmy Earls. I've got this book. It's about teenage girls and they're overcoming this. It's a fantasy. Could I speak at your church? By the way, I spoke at this other church in your same denomination and they love me. And if you just spent 30 minutes a day making those phone calls, <laughs> you end up selling more books.
1: That is a really good point. I, yeah, I, I love that.
0: So any other questions for our coaching call?
1: I feel like everything that I, you know, well, one thing that I was thinking of, I looked at the stats on my website and I'm noticing that the ones that were promoted through Facebook or Instagram, they'd click on my website. It looks like they looked at one blog and then they would be done. And so I'm realizing from this that it seems like people need to uh, be drawn in on that homepage. And I think that homepage is the most important place because if there's not something that is going to grab their attention right when they go there, they're done. <laughs> um, they may lose interest. And so, you know, I've thought of even publishing, self-publishing a short story so that they sign up, so that there's something that looks appealing that is bringing attention. What are your thoughts on, uh, is there anything else too that you can think of that would be good?
0: So we call that a reader magnet, and it's absolutely a good thing to put on your website, a short story, ideally in the same story world, is your fantasy that you're writing. It's, it's one of the advantages of uh, writing fantasy and sci-fi is that the world is part of the draw, and so you're able to share more of the world in short stories, and people can start to fall in love with whatever is weird about your world. Right? There's dragons, or people can fly, or there's aliens. There are
1: people and... who can fly. <laughs> okay,
0: perfect. Right? So, so it's a. Um, it's a true fantasy, right? Who hasn't fantasized about being able to fly in this world okay. past that? And so while the short story may or may not have all of your cool characters that are in your novel, the fact that it has flying people in the same world, you know, maybe a little bit before the story gets started, or maybe it's about one of your characters, you know, a little bit before the story gets started. Some of that backstory that you had to cut so that you can start your book off with a bang, see if you can't rework that world-building backstory into a compelling story. It can't just be a bunch of, you know, info dump about... You know, It's not a role-playing guide for how to be a dungeon master in your story world. Uh, That's really good. But going back to your blog, it's really important when you're writing for different people than yourself, right? Because a lot of authors basically just write for themselves and when you ask them to describe their target reader, they describe themselves in generic terms. When you're writing for somebody else, it's important to uh, move the camera down to their eye level, right? So like... My kids are all at knee level. So if I want to see the world as they see it, I need to move the camera down to knee level. And suddenly the obstacles for me that are no big deal are insurmountable obstacles for them. Like when we we just moved and we had moving boxes all over. And for my children, they can't step over a moving box. They can't even climb over a moving box. So a moving box is something that's such a massive obstacle Every time they would wake up from a nap or wake up in the morning, the house was different. It was an evolving maze, right? And to be able to write, obviously they're too young for blog posts, but but to write and to talk to them, you have to enter their world. And oftentimes when we're blogging for teens, the camera is at our eye level and we're kind of taking photos down. And they look at it and like, this isn't how the world looks for me because it's from your perspective, not from their perspective. So you have to enter their world. You have to learn their vernacular, and also figure out the issues that they are struggling with. And one good way to do this is you talk with your Timothy or Tamantha, Ask her what music she likes, because the music that they're listening to tells you a lot about what's resonating, the the problems that they have. Uh, and it's really interesting if you listen to the music. The amongst Christian kids, a really popular artist is NF, who raps about anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. And he has millions and millions of downloads. He's even popular outside of the Christian market. He's, he's so popular. And so knowing what's resonating with them, and it may be that your Samantha's like, I hate NF. I listen to so-and-so instead, right? Whatever. You <laughs> need to get to know that target audience. And if you're listening to the music that they're listening to, it gives you credibility, helps you understand them. And it will help you see the world as they see it, which will help you write stories that resonate with them. And it will make it easier to write blog posts because what's important for you and what you think should be important for them is not the same as what is important for them.
1: I really love that. That's super helpful.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on this coaching call. If you would like to come on a coaching call like this, we have an application form on the Novel Marketing website. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, How these work is you just ask questions, I answer them, and everybody gets to listen in on the advice. And Amy Earls, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Thomas.
0: Registration for the Book Launch Blueprint ends this week. So it's not too late if you are listening to this episode right when it comes out. And for those of you who want to go through the Book Launch Blueprint but you missed it for 2021, don't worry. We will do it again in 2022. We'll have a waiting list that you can sign up for to be the first to know when the Book Launch Blueprint releases next year. And you can find that at booklaunch.fun. And if you're still on the fence about whether or not the Book Launch Blueprint is for you, let me play this short testimonial from someone who went through the course last year.
2: Ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be an author. But somewhere along the way, that started to sound silly, like a little boy who wants to play in the NFL. So I did the obvious thing and went to medical school. I had a 20-year career and delivered 5,000 babies until a rare disease landed me on the other side of the sheet. I put down my scalpel, picked up a pen, and started to fulfill my childhood dream. I took countless courses and attended conferences on writing and platform building until six years later when my book baby was finally ready to be delivered. I sent it off to a handful of agents and they all said the same thing. Your writing is excellent. Your marketing plan is terrible. Of course, that's not what they actually said, but you get the picture. I needed a specialist, and I found Thomas Umstead Jr.'s course, Book Launch Blueprint. I connected with other authors in the Facebook groups, but more importantly, I got a step-by-step marketing plan that I can use for my book. So if your book is ready to be delivered and you need a specialist, tell them Dr. Vicki Pets Henderson referred you to Book Launch Blueprint.
0: This free podcast is my gift to you, and it is supported by listeners like you. Our featured patron who helps support the show is Roger W. Lowther, author of Aroma of Beauty. What would you do if a natural disaster decimated a huge part of your country? After Japan's catastrophic earthquake in 2011, Roger's family and community found themselves reeling. In the aftermath, music had a healing power never dreamed possible. These stories of the aroma of God's beauty and presence in the aftermath of devastation will encourage you, inspire you, and change you. Roger, thank you so much for supporting the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, you can. You can do it at patreon.com or you can find the links at authormedia.com slash 279 for episode 279. And if you can't afford to become a patron but still want to support the show, all you have to do is share this episode with one author you think would find it helpful. You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. and Amy Earls on the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you would like to get the blog post version of this episode, you can find it at authormedia.com. The audio was edited by William Umstead. The blog post was edited by Shauna Letelier. And if you want to find that blog post version, you can find it at authormedia.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.